Hey, it's Jack, host of the show. A long time ago, I set up a file sharing website at home on a Raspberry Pi. I set it up to make it easy to transfer files between me and anyone I needed to send files to. It was a simple website, drag and drop the file onto the web page, and boom, it's hosted on my website for like a week and then it gets deleted. I knew it wasn't secure, so I would never posted anything that was sensitive to it. But I also took this opportunity to see if I could detect anyone trying to hack into the thing. I set up all my best sensors I had at home, a firewall, an intrusion detection system, full packet captures using security onion. I turned on tons of logging and watched, but nothing happened. Nobody knew my site existed to even think about trying to exploit it. Oh well, yeah, I forgot about that little website for years. But last week, I went to check on it and there was a suspicious file uploaded, not by me. I checked into it, and whoa, someone uploaded an exploit and gained access to my Raspberry Pi. A hacker was in my house. Okay, uh, geez, uh, quick, what do you do? Now perhaps some people would feel freaked out, violated, or get anxiety because it's scary knowing someone is in your computer looking at your stuff and you have no idea who they are. But me? Well, I stayed calm because I expected this to happen. So I isolated the whole thing on its own network and it just wasn't possible for them to move to any other computer or get anything good off this Raspberry Pi. You could say this was sort of a honeypot. I traced their footsteps and looked at everything they did. Amateurs. They used an off-the-shelf PHP script to exploit the thing. They didn't cover their tracks. They checked a few directories looking for anything good. The server had nothing, not even a database. They tried getting to root and hopping to some other devices in the network, but yeah, no luck. This system wasn't even allowed to connect to the internet, so they left. And so, yeah, not really that exciting. I turned that Raspberry Pi off and reformatted the SD card. But you know what? I did learn something cool along the way. And we're going to get into a similar story today that I think you'll learn something interesting too on what to do when this happens in an important network. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Okay, so this is another mini stories episode. There are three stories in one. These are stories that are too good to pass up, but not long enough to make into a whole episode. And there are a few cuss words in this one, just to let you know. All right, so let's call some hackers. Hello? Oh, can you hear me? This is Dave Kennedy. He's quite known in the InfoSec space. He's built some highly popular hacking tools and helped start DerbyCon, which is a popular hacking conference in Kentucky. But probably the thing he's most proud of his crowning achievement Hi. is this. How are you? One sec, I'm just finishing up an email. This is a clip from Mr. Robot. Elliot, the character in the show, is trying to hide from someone and slips into a conference room and tries to social engineer his way into a meeting that's in progress. We should get started. I think you're in the wrong room. I'm sorry, you are? Sean, head of sales. Sean, of course. Dave Kennedy, I work with Craig on the Q4 push. I had longer hair then. <laughs> There's no coincidence that Elliot uses Dave Kennedy as his fake name while trying to social engineer his way into this thing. It's because Dave is a social engineer master. Dave's reputation precedes him. 
So how does a big-time InfoSec guy like this get started playing video games in high school? I uh, was programming MUDs uh, back then, uh, and I had my, I was one of the guys that ran uh, the actual MUD and, and kind of promoted and grew it and everything else. And that's where I started learning some C and C++. MUD stands for Multi-User Dungeon. Think of it like World of Warcraft, but with absolutely no graphics. It's all text-based, but still online where you can group up and quest and raid and fight everything. He realized college wasn't right for him after high school, so he decided to join the Army. He headed down to the Army recruiter's office. The guys just didn't seem very happy there, and I'm like, man, why would I really join this if the folks that are trying to recruit me aren't happy about their jobs or what they're doing? And I was actually walking out about not ready, not, not even going to join the military, and I saw these uh, four, like, really buff Marines, like, walking in, you know, sink, and they just, you know, were in the dress blues, and they look, just looked sharp as heck. And uh, I was like, man, I want to be like that. I walked into the Marine recruiting station and I was a really overweight kid and, you know, didn't have a lot of physical fitness or anything like that. And I said, hey, I want to I want to become a Marine. And uh, and I, t- I tested very highly on the, the ASVAP, which is the aptitude test for uh, for the military. And uh, what was great about the Marine Corps is uh, they guarantee your position. And I wanted to do something uh, like hacking uh, and, and, and wanted to get into more of the uh, intelligence side of things. So I was able to, to go into uh, uh, the military intelligence side and, and work in signals intelligence, which was a ton of fun. He was stationed in Hawaii and Fort Meade and did two tours in Iraq. He got to do fun stuff like forensics and research and cyber warfare. He got out of the military and joined a small consulting shop. Back then, penetration testing and security in general was in its early stages. Social engineering, the deceptively benign sounding name for tricking people into giving up their passwords, that really wasn't that big of a thing yet. And web applications weren't really getting that much attention from the security professionals. Dave headed up the penetration testing division, then eventually became the VP of consulting. And it was at this, his first job, where he learned a lot of new skills and different programming languages like Python. And then uh, I had a really great opportunity hit me to be the uh, chief security officer over at Diebold. Uh, which at the time, I think I was like 26 or 27 years old, which was awesome. Uh, you know, being a VP of, of uh, sec- you know, security of a, a Fortune 1000 company, uh, really had no idea what I was doing, but it turned out to be a really, really awesome position. I learned a ton from that. 27 and the VP of a Fortune 1000 company? Oh, he was young and motivated to learn. He picked up all kinds of skills that he used to then start up his own company, which he called TrustedSec. And then he started Binary Defense. So uh, TrustedSec is an information security consulting company. Uh, I started it literally in the basement of my house uh, and, and Binary Defense as well. I started Binary Defense. Uh, uh, and they're both uh, two different companies, two separate companies. And I did that for, for a very specific reason. Uh, consulting is, is very specific. And I didn't feel like we could be the same company doing the same work and, and also doing the monitoring detection of an organization as well, like giving heads up or making ourselves look good when we're doing an assessment. So I really split the companies up uh, early on. And I think we have about 162 employees now. The story we're talking about today is about an assignment with TrustedSec. For this engagement, the client was a large retail company with retail stores all over the U.S. And they wanted Dave to test the security of the store. And, you know, we had a few objectives. One is to be able to steal stuff from the store. The other objectives were to get access to the corporate headquarters. Steal stuff from the store is actually going into the store and grabbing like stuff off the shelves? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As well as as well as uh, could you get access to the back uh, store area uh, where they have like the point of sale systems and the, uh, you know, like the base servers. Can we get into that and, and, and plant stuff in? So it was a lot of fun. If you think about it, this type of work is simply quality assurance. Companies have been doing quality assurance testing for decades, making sure their product is within spec. And now in the modern age, the way some companies test quality assurance is to hire a bad guy 
to see how good their security is. We did we did some reconnaissance, uh, you know, ahead of time. We went to the store, you know, purchased a couple of things legitimately. Went to a different store, um, looked at who the employees were, how they operated when they took lunch breaks, least amount of personnel during times. Uh, we had all of that kind of mapped out for when we were actively going after this this organization. While he was there, he noticed these stores all have LP. You know what LP is, right? It's loss prevention. And it's typically a person standing near the front door of the store watching every customer coming in and going out to prevent people like Dave from stealing things. So first, Dave got to test how good their LP is. Uh, so if you come in wearing a suit, uh, you're pretty much not going to be looked upon. Uh, you, you come in dressed up, you know, as a... Uh, you know, with ripped jeans and, uh, you know, uh, uh, dirty hair or something like that. I don't know. Uh, you know, looking suspicious, you know, looking to your left and right. And, and, and you know, maybe maybe that's a way that you get um, identified. But, for, you know, for us, you know, we, we usually come in uh, looking professional, uh, you know, and, and looking in a way that, that we're not suspicious. We're not looking over our shoulders. We're not looking nervous. We're looking like a customer. We might actually buy some things with cash, you know, just to just to kind of throw everything off. It's, it's more so just trying to be uh, and act like you play a part of that role and that you fit. So we just started grabbing a bunch of things uh, from the store, uh, you know, uh, shoving them into our backpacks. So during this time, the LP is looking for shoplifters. But Dave brought help to handle that, a second person to distract the LP. It's very difficult to keep an eye on everybody that's in the store. So, you know, there, there's only a finite amount of personnel. Um, if you can do some distractions in different locations that have lo uh, much lower levels of personnel, uh, you have a much higher uh, percentage of, of being successful. And things that can take... Uh, time away from the person. Like, you know, if we have two people, you can do a diversion for one, uh, have them communicate and talk, and then the other person's doing uh, nefarious things. I think that that works out really well with us when we have two people kind of uh, doing it. At this point, Dave has a bag full of stuff he stole and is walking around the store. This is a multi-floor store. So it goes up to the second floor and even goes up to the third floor. We walked into the store as just a regular person. And when they weren't looking, we just went into the back. We were basically in back for like, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. We have these little devices that we call tap devices um, that have cellular, cellular communications. So we don't have to worry about the firewalls, but it still allows direct access to their network. So we plug that into uh, their network. It has two ports on it. Um, just unplug the one Ethernet cable, plug the other one in, and then um, was able to basically have direct access to their backend infrastructure, uh, their cardholder environment, and uh, uh, the, the retail's uh, enterprise network. Okay, he's stolen stuff and now tapped into the network and got access into their backend infrastructure through this network port. It had uh, iPads for kind of catching people out and things like that. Uh, and uh, we took the, uh, like two of the iPads. <laughs> Jeez, Dave is on a roll here. So now they have access to customer credit card information and internal company data that came out from the back room to see what other things they could take from the store. And then we, we saw the cash register and it was on uh, this like podium. And so we just had one of our folks, there's two of us. Uh, one of them was just basically asking about a bunch of stuff. And he was distracting the LP. I basically took a, a screwdriver um, and, and removed it from the, the actually bolted in from the, the thing and walked out with the uh, the cash register. This is a big cash register. This isn't like a small thing. I mean, I took the whole cash register with all the money inside of it. I mean, it's it's extremely heavy. So I carried that out literally and uh, walked out of the store without anybody. And, and, and one of the employees looked at me and you know kind of looked at me weird, but then I kind of, you know, I just, I kind of waved and walked out. And that was kind of, that was the end of the story. We walked out and drove in our car and drove off. Dave walks out of the store with a big old heavy cash register full of cash, two iPads in his backpack, and a ton of other store merchandise. Unbelievable. You know, it's a, it's, it's a rush. I, I get nervous every single time I still do it. Dave now tries to test another store to see how they'd handle him. And um, for one of the stores, 
we called ahead and we spoofed our number coming from the corporate offices and claimed to be one of their main IT folks and that we were going to be doing an upgrade to the store location um, for, for faster bandwidth and everything else. And they were super excited about that. So they let us right in. We had big business cards. This is one of Dave's specialties, social engineering, spoofing phone numbers, acting like IT from corporate office. He's a master at this. When he did this, it worked like a charm. They escorted him right into the back room, showed him the computers, and left him there unsupervised for 30 minutes while he hacked into the network. Again, unbelievable. Dave explained to the head of security how they could get into everything so easily. This kind of shocked them. So they wanted Dave to now test the security in their corporate headquarters to see if they could break into the data center there. And uh, here's where we actually got busted. Wasn't the store locations that have the most amount of security um, it was the enterprise location that didn't have much security at all. First, they had to figure out how to get into the building of headquarters. And and what we what we did is uh, we looked at the front location. The front location, um, you had a lot of people badging in. However, one of the side doors, um, people could just walk out. You didn't see anybody walking in, but you could see people walking out, especially during lunch and, and dinner and things like that. And so um, during lunchtime, we waited uh, outside and saw somebody walking out, and we just pretended to be on the phone. We're dressed up in a suit. Uh, and as soon as the door was about to close, we grabbed and we walked right in. So it was really easy to get into the building itself. It's easy for Dave because he knows all the tricks and has done this a bunch of times. When you do something a lot, you get pretty confident with what you're doing. You just walk around like you belong. Um, you know, you, you kind of just walk around, you know, you, you pretend that you're on the phone. Uh, you're with somebody else. So you're pointing at something or pretending that you're having a meeting. Um, and you just keep walking around the building until you find the objectives that you need. We found the data center. Um, the data center was locked and there wasn't a lot of traffic, especially during the lunchtime. We uh, went to this conference room, which was basically like conference room tucked away on the side. They sat down and acted like they belonged there. And from here, they planned their next steps. They wanted in the data center, but that door was locked. And chances are it's harder to piggyback into a data center and just follow someone else in. But a good social engineer doesn't always have everything planned out. Sometimes they just have to take it step by step see how far they can get, and then figure out what they can do from there. So they looked around to see what they could use in this conference room. And there's a conference, uh, you know, like a, a bridge on there, like a phone there. And we called from the bridge and I called the data center number. And the way that I was able to do that was first calling the receptionist first, um, saying, hey, what's the, the, the data center's um, extension? They gave it to me, then I called the extension. And then uh, before we called the extension, we did some research on individual people in the company. And I found a, a person in IT that had access to the data center. And so I called this phone. I'm like, hey, it's, you know, I'll just say his name's Bob. I'm like, hey, it's, it's Bob. I'm, I'm here with a bunch of auditors for, uh, for PCI work. Um, just, I'm gonna, they, they need to do just a quick site audit um, of the data center. Uh, could you let them in uh, just so, just so uh, we can get this last part of this, this uh, you know, compliance thing taken care of for, for, for the payment card industry? I just threw out a bunch of acronyms and things like that. And the, the person at the data center, uh, was like, hey, who'd you, who'd you say you were again? I'm like, oh, hey, it's, it's Bob, just trying to get this audit done. He's like, I'm best friends with Bob, and you're definitely not Bob. Uh, I don't know who you are or why you're calling from a conference room that's downstairs, but uh, something's not right here. Shoot, he's been caught. Of all the people to impersonate, he picked someone that person on the phone actually knew. Quick, what do you do? We rushed out of the building really quick before we got busted. <laughs> Dave escapes. And that's always the second objective to a social engineer if they get caught to try to escape. Because part of this is testing their incident response. And their response was pretty poor if they let Dave get away. But Dave's objective was not complete. The company tasked him with getting into the data center. So he needs to go back and try again. 
But now, on one hand, he knows more about the location, and on the other hand, it might be trickier because maybe they're on high alert now. We um, rebroke back in uh, two days later. Uh, same same method for for piggybacking, and then we did uh, we waited past launch until everybody came back, and we kind of just sat. Um, there was like a little break room right outside the data center, um, and we just sat and watched who had access to the data center, who didn't. They noticed to get into the data center, you need an RFID badge. This is one of those proximity cards where you swipe a credit card looking thing near the door and it unlocks the door. Well, they came prepared for that. We, we've created our own custom backpacks that are over amplified and we can usually get um, a little bit of distance, uh, a few inches away from an individual on their badge and, and be able to collect. So we can just walk past somebody uh, and clone their badge um, and, and be able to, to um, uh, replicate it. And we can clone as many as you want to. We can actually imprint new badges uh, and what we usually do is um, we'll get pictures from outside uh, the facility uh, of their badges, and then we'll, we'll we have a printer in our cars, like a portable printer. We'll print uh, badge uh, badge IDs that look like theirs as well with our pictures on it, uh, and then we'll just imprint those badges uh, with um, with their um, identification there and their 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 uh, badge cloning. So uh, just by walking past them, you can literally just clone a badge as many as you want to. So they do just that. They prepare to use their RFID keycard cloning machine to walk past someone coming in or out of the data center, clone it, and then go make a copy off-site. As they're watching people go in and out of the data center, they pick someone, a mark. And we were able to uh, walk past a person, kind of grab them and say, hey, you know, I'm a new employee here, blah, 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 and just ask a bunch of questions. Um, and we cloned his badge at the same time. Success. They got the digital key they need to get into the data center. So they need to leave and go print it on a badge. They pack up and head out. Came back at night, but uh, badged ourselves in and got into the data center that way. We signed in uh, as we were supposed to because there's somebody in there. Didn't even question us or ask us. Just kind of looked at us. We signed in. They they went back to their computer. Um, and then we essentially had free access to roam uh, the data center. And, and what we did uh, is we placed another tap device um, in one of the uh, core networking switches. Uh, which gave us, we confirmed we had DHCP um, and we were able to communicate with uh, different things. And uh, so once we had that, we essentially had direct access um, to their internal, in, into their entire environment and kind of took pictures and selfies and things like that. There was actually a bathroom in the data center, which I thought was really weird. So we used the bathroom and then uh, we walked out. Mission accomplished. Feels good. But Dave is in a funny place because when he's successful, it means his client's security wasn't strong enough. It sort of means he has to go to them with bad news. It's almost always shock. Um, they, they assume that they have problems or exposures, but they probably don't realize to what extent that is. And, and our, our job isn't to say like, listen, you're doing all this wrong. Our, our job is to highlight the things that they're doing well as well. Uh, so, you know, here's the things that you did well. Here's the things that actually thwarted or stopped us. Here's the things that, that you know, you do very good. And here are some of the things that we identified that are really good for you to address based on criticality or risk towards your organization. And here's how you address them. Here's how you fix them. It's not just about, you know, smashing and grabbing and, and, and being an awesome hacker and doing all those crazy things. It's really about making the customer better, making the people that you're testing uh, better in the long run. I think that's, that's really important that we lose a lot in this industry of is that, you know, most fo folks just, just focus on, hey, I'm the best hacker in the world. I just destroyed everything. Good luck, you know, and kind of leave it there. Whereas, you know, as an industry, we really have to focus more on the teaching aspects around, hey, how do they actually fix this? How do they actually address it? Uh, what are the things that we can do to get better? and uh, make it harder for attackers to get in. And that's really our ultimate goal. Dave met with the company and coached them how to shore up their defenses. As you may have guessed, this episode and past episodes, those RFID badges, yeah, they're vulnerable to cloning, which makes it easy to bypass those locks. 
Some companies have moved away from using badges like this and have switched to something else like maybe a magnetic stripe card, which has its own weaknesses, but it makes cloning it a little bit harder. Other companies require a biometric ID to get into doors, so like a fingerprint or an eye scanner. And I've been in a big data center that did all this and more. An RFID badge just to get into the parking lot, a pin to get into the building, then to get into the data center area in the building, you had to swipe a magnetic card, enter a little chamber, which weighed you, and then did a retina scan, and then allowed only one person through at a time, with a guard watching every single person coming in and out. Then to top it off, I needed an old-fashioned regular key to get into the actual cage where my client's servers were. Oh, and as a side note, I thwarted all this security a few times and snuck my girlfriend in without going through any of this. But that's another story. <clears throat> so Dave gave a bunch of tips to this client. Uh, you know, when we debrief them, we worked with them again uh, the, the next year, and uh, they had really uh, taken the results and, and addressed them. They ended up switching to a different solution uh, and away from uh, proximity cards. Uh, so uh, they actually did a technology improvement and enhancement and uh, put also additional controls in place. Like uh, instead of that, that back area being there, uh, you had to go through kind of like man traps and things like that to get in and out of the building. So they, they did a really good job. And, and uh, we actually got busted the year after that. So uh, in both the retail location store, um, as well as the corporate uh, headquarters. So it was kind of a good success story. Support for this show comes from Veronis. Guess how many files the average employee can access on their first day of work? 17 million. And most of them, they never use. Those files are what these ransomware gangs steal and hold hostage because companies will pay to get that back. That's why ransomware is such a threat. The blast radius is huge, 17 million files? There's so much valuable data that's easy to get and they can make money from. Do you wonder what your company's ransomware blast radius is? Veronis does a free cyber resilience assessment and tells you how many important files a compromised user could steal and whether anything would beep if they did and a whole lot more. They actually do all the work, show you where the data is open to, if anyone is using it, and what you can do to lock it down before attackers get inside. They also can detect behavior that looks like ransomware and stop it automatically. You can even get a break on your cyber insurance. If you want to learn more, visit varonis.com dark. That's spelled V-A-R-O-N-I-S, varonis.com dark. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger podcast. Here's a clip from one of his episodes. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger show, where I speak with the infamous Firefest's Billy McFarland from inside federal prison, where he's serving six years for fraud and on the hook for $26 million in restitution. This call is from William McFarland, an inmate at a federal prison. Is this the new Billy that we're hearing, or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the Fire Festival? When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the f*** was I thinking. I was wrong, and I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact. Once you knew that the festival wasn't gonna go as planned, why didn't you call it off? So a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. 
We had something called the urgent daily payments document. Essentially, it was a list of payments that we had to make that day or else the festival couldn't proceed. In the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day where I had to wake up at nine in the morning, find three million dollars by noon, and then make the payments by four. You had a big vision, I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I have to wonder if there's gonna be a Firefest version too. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar? If there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. Are you good to come? For more with Billy McFarland, including lessons learned on the inside and his plans once he's served the time he agrees he rightly deserves, check out episode 422 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. So yeah, might as well start out with uh, your name and what do you do? All right, so my name is Clay. I'm an InfoSec engineer. Um, So I work at a university um, so I'm InfoSec for an entire school. So yeah, we have uh, a lot of Linux machines. We've also been migrating a lot to the cloud. Clay does a lot of IT work for this school, this big university, ranging from anything from coding to system administration, web app security, setting up the network, and even doing penetration tests. I, I also help generate best practices. If they have, if sysadmins or programmers have questions, they can come to me. And if I don't know the answer off the top of my head, I, I do the research and get back to them. One of Clay's responsibilities is to take care of threats that are found in the network. And one thing he battles a lot with is... Crypto miners. Being in this environment, in academia, it's really hard to have all of the systems on the network managed. A managed system is just a computer that Clay is aware of and can access and somewhat control. So an unmanaged computer on the network, Clay has no control over it and may not even know it exists. Obviously, if you're a system admin, you want to be able to access all the computers on your network. But at the same time, it's impossible to manage every computer at a university. Students bring their own devices into the network all the time. But yeah, something Clay battles with frequently is crypto miners. And this is where a student might install a Bitcoin miner on a computer in the lab or in a research center. And then the Bitcoin miner will consume a ton of CPU or graphics processing to try to generate some crypto coins and automatically get deposited into the student's wallet. And we'll actually get an alert when this happens. Uh, We have an IDS in place. Um, So that's typically how we'll, um, we'll be notified of these events. An IDS stands for Intrusion Detection System. This is a device that inspects every packet coming in or out of the network and checks to see if that packet matches any known signature for some kind of security issue. In this case, it matches the signature for crypto mining because when it connects to the blockchain or pools or whatever, it then recognizes this as a miner and triggers an alert. Yeah, then, then the fun begins. Um, we can isolate the machine, usually myself, and a sysadmin, just so we have two pairs of eyes. It's always better than one. We'll go and we'll start the investigation. We'll look at running processes. We'll look at the bash history, things like that. We'll look at um, open ports, if it's like running netstat, so we can see if it's listening or if there's a a connection that is established. Um, There isn't always. Um, But yeah, we look at all those things. It's fun because when detecting something is wrong in the network and then you find it and isolate it and squish it, it's just exciting. 
And as a sysadmin, most of your job isn't tackling live security issues. So when it's happening, yeah, it is exciting. And honestly, it's always fun to catch someone in the act that's doing something they shouldn't be doing and go and bonk them on the head and tell them not to do that anymore because they're usually blown away that you figured out it was them. So this paints a picture of what kind of stuff Clay works on. But Clay also sometimes does this on the side a little. He has a few clients and he helps secure their network. And when they have an issue, they call him up. One day, they give him a call. So this was just a normal day at work. I got an email from the client. Something doesn't seem right. Something doesn't look right. The, uh, the application is acting kind of funky or you know, something's off. Um, so it's like, okay, well, let me you know, grab a cup of coffee and um, come and check it out. Basically, one of the faculty or staff at the school was complaining about a slow website, which was running Linux, which is a server that Clay can access and check into. The Linux server runs this website, and Clay looks around at the thing. He's checking things like, does the website load? Yeah, it does. It's working okay. Is the server running high CPU or is low on disk space? No, that's fine too. Things seem okay, and maybe a junior-level sysadmin would stop here and just try to let it sort itself out, reboot the machine, and be done. But Clay is not a junior sysadmin. He's a senior security engineer. So he takes another look. I want to see who's logged in, um, if anyone is logged in. He checks here to see if any developers are in there messing around, or another sysadmin doing something, or anyone fiddling with this. He doesn't see anyone else there, so he does his usual rounds. Is the database up and running? Is the VPN up and running? How does that look? Um, So just standard stuff, right? Looking over the whole application stack, making sure things are running. Doing a quick top, making sure nothing is running extremely high, taking up a lot of load, taking up a lot of, using a lot of memory, those sorts of things. At first glance, all this seems okay still. But then a second look through everything, he finds something. I found um, that there was a root shell open. A root shell is open on this server. Let me explain. On Linux, the super user or administrator is called root. This user account has full privileges to everything on the server. What Clay sees is that someone is logged in as root. Having a shell is another way of saying someone's logged into the command line. Now, you and I might think, oh, it's just another administrator doing work. But the school has set up the network correctly. See, it's not good to allow anyone to log in as root because you have no idea who that is logged in as root. And every hacker on the planet knows this username exists and will try to brute force the password to it if you give them a chance. So the school set it up so that individual users, like Clay's username, has access and admin capabilities and super user privileges. So Clay knows that under no circumstance should anyone ever be logged in as root. But here there is, someone is logged in as root. I immediately start thinking to myself, oh crap, what, we we do have a compromise. It is a root level compromise. So now my heart starts pounding a little bit more you know stronger and i start thinking well hell what the hell do i do next okay so in the physical world this is equivalent to coming home and seeing your front door is wide open and there are muddy tracks leading into your house 
the feeling of discovering someone is in your server that shouldn't be there and for them to have root level access to it is really, really scary. Do I look to see how they got in and block it? Do I just sever the break, sever their connection and, and hope they don't come back before I can patch the stuff or what? So all of these, all of these thoughts are just racing through my mind. Clay takes a step back and a deep breath. All of a sudden, he's hyper-focused on this issue now. Anything else that he was thinking about doing that day is no longer in his thoughts. This is all he can think about. So I said, well, the best thing to do is determine how the hell they got in, right? And, and try not to make a lot of noise on the system while I'm doing this because I don't know if they're active, if they're like sitting at the shell actively looking at stuff or if they're, they just have a shell open and it's in the background or maybe that shell is just waiting for a command or something. I don't know exactly what's going on. So I want to be careful and I want to go slowly and I want to find out what the hell happened. So being a web application, I knew it had to be probably SQL injection. Cross-eyed scripting thing probably wouldn't lead to this level of compromise, at least not right away. So I started looking at the database. This web server was running an SQL database, and this is where all the data is stored for the website. Clay was looking at the history of commands executed in the database, trying to find anything unusual. And I started looking at some of the pages that use the database more heavily than others. And I did start to notice some weird shit in the database, um, in some of the tables. And I was able to isolate it to one of two pages that had this um, vulnerability. And so I visited those pages um, and they looked okay. Nothing was out of whack or funky or it, no errors were being displayed or anything like that. Um, so I thought, let me just move these files and get them just move them out of the way so they're not accessible anymore. Clay determined that a couple of pages on this website were probably where the hacker got in. So he just took those pages offline, making it so further intrusions couldn't occur. Now, removing how this person got in is one thing, but it doesn't remove them from your server. The root user was still logged into the server. But if Clay kicks them out now, they probably couldn't get back in. I tried to SU to root at some point during this whole thing. And I couldn't. So they, I knew they had changed the password. Clay knows the root password to this machine, but it wasn't letting him log into it. Yikes, this just got scarier. Not only is there someone in his server, but they're actively changing the passwords on it. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so now I'm freaking out because this system might have to be completely torn down and rebuilt. Yes, we have backups, thankfully. I'm not sure, but I don't think you can kick out the root user unless you are logged in as root yourself. And when you know you have an active hacker in your network, it's hard to know if you're cleaning up everything when you do kick them out. They might have an open back door or pivoted to another computer. It's so stressful. So th we're, this box is hosed. I'm gonna have to call the data center and have someone go to the machine, physically unplug it, and call it a day and like figure out what the next steps are, right? So to, to rebuild. So that's when I said, well, I really don't want to go down that route. What, is there anything I can do? 
Clay is logged into the server and decides to look at the files located under etc password and etc shadow. These files contain a list of hashed passwords for each user, and Clay is able to see the hashed password for root. Now, this isn't the actual password, it's a representation of the password, a long string of crazy characters that you get once you run it through an algorithm. When you type your password in, it runs it through that same algorithm again, and if it's a matching result as that long crazy string, then the passwords match. And that's when I started to run John the Ripper on it. John the Ripper is a tool used to crack passwords. It'll try thousands, uh, millions of passwords, and run it through that algorithm to see if it has a matching hash. At this point, Clay has become a hacker himself and is doing exactly what a hacker would do to crack passwords to break into a computer. It's just that Clay is trying to break into his own server. Now, to run John the Ripper, this takes a while. Clay doesn't have a beefy cracking station, so he goes on to investigate more about what this guy's doing. and starts looking at database tables and other stuff. But within a short time, there was a hit, a match on the passwords. John the Ripper found what the root password was. And it surprised Clay how quickly he actually found it, which usually means it's not that complicated. And yeah, so the password was Mark2002. I will never forget it. He won't forget it because it's awesome to use hacker tools to outsmart a hacker and for it to work so effectively. Great job, Clay. Yeah. So now I'm starting to feel good. Um, I'm much more optimistic at this point. So I start thinking, I need to boot this guy off. I need, I move the files out of the way. I can lock down the database. I can just shut off the database, right? I'll shut the, the database down. We'll put up a notice. We're down for maintenance. Not a big deal. And then I can get back to that later, later in the evening or when, whenever. But how, how am I going to boot this guy off? What can I do to lock it down further? Monitoring can I put in place that isn't already here that, to help me to help throw an alert if, if the person should get back. So I start developing a plan. So it's not so easy as just kicking the hacker out of your network. You have to make sure you have everything in place. If you kick the hacker out and they just have a way to come right back in, you essentially did nothing. Because if they set up a back door and they just come in through that, you might not even know they came back. Clay has a plan to kick this person out, but he's going to have to do it quickly so the hacker doesn't just come right back in. He starts to look at the server to plan every step out. So I need to SU to root, so I do that. Okay, so now I'm root. Are there any cron jobs in place? Um, I have his shell process, I can kill it, great. Um, let me look at IP tables and only allow SSH access to, you know, or from uh, one or two IP addresses, that's it. Um, so I had that lined up. Um, I need to take down the database, put up a maintenance notice and, and change the password again. And, and also look for um, evidence of files that may have been dropped or evidence of other back doors that might be listening or ready to listen. So I'm looking in, you know, slash temp, looking in roots directory, looking all over for for, for, for clues like that. Um, just to do it, doing it quickly, but definitely coming back to that once I kill the process and change the password. Okay, at this point, his plan is all sorted out. Each command is typed out on a notepad, just ready to be pasted in. He double checks that there's not anything else that he missed, and he thinks he's all ready. Three, two, one, go. Kill the login for root, change the password, turn off the database entirely, put up a maintenance notice, and block this IP from ever connecting to this again. He thinks that's it. 
That's all the commands. He's watching the connections, but not seeing anyone try to come back in. It worked. Clay feels... Amazing. <laughs> Fucking amazing. Um, yeah, my heart was still racing. Um, I wasn't sure if it was all going to work, right? Because I don't know what everything that had been done. Um, the techniques weren't like very advanced. I didn't, there wasn't a bunch of like cleaning up things or, you know, cleaning up the bash history or, you know, scrubbing the logs or anything like that. I'd ha- I saw no evidence of that. So it didn't seem very high tech. So I was optimistic, regain control of the machine and keep the person out. Um, I'm still on in like response mode. So I had to reach out to the owner of the system, let them know what has transpired. Um, and then I immediately start planning next steps. Um, yeah, I want to run to the bar and have a beer real quick, but there's really no time for that. Um, I also reached out to the data center just to let them know what had happened. Um, I just felt like that was a responsible thing to do and briefed them on what I did and the steps I had taken in that the vulnerability was identified and essentially fixed. Yeah. And then at that point, I thought I had done my due diligence of informing um, all, all of the stakeholders. And now I could take a deep breath and start focusing on forensics a little bit because I wanted to save all the things, right? I wanted to save the SQL logs. I wanted to save bash history. I didn't find any funky binaries, so that was good. And then I had to start cleaning up the database, which was a task and chore. Yeah. And then I had to start locking down, you know, thinking about other ways to lock down the system and other monitoring to put in place. Clay went through as much of the logs as he could to retrace every step the hacker took, because that's important and it's the right thing to do. If you can figure out how they got in and how long they were there and what they did while they were there, you can improve security immensely. He determined the hacker had only been in there for a few days, and they got in by using an SQL injection through the web page that he found. He figured this out by looking at the SQL logs, and through this, they were able to get a shell on the server, which then they escalated their privileges to root. And once he figured all this out, Clay rolled the server back and database back to the day before the hacker got in, so that if the hacker left anything behind, it was completely gone. And they fixed the SQL injection that this website had. I think Clay did a great job handling the situation. Besides doing sysadmin work and chasing hackers out of the network, Clay also is an organizer for the Whopper Summit. The goal is to really bring together different communities that are all really involved with hacking and making, building and breaking things. It's going to take place at the end of March next year, um, and it's more than likely going to be right outside the Philadelphia area. Yeah, so if you're around Philly next March, go to the Whopper Summit. That's W-O-P-R, which is the name of the computer in war games. It just sounds so much fun. Support for this episode comes from Oracle for Startups. I think I have to buy a new phone this week. This one I have is running out of space, and it's just too slow for my modern usage. But I wonder if startup companies have this same problem, where they start out with some cool new technology to run their business, but over time it starts to slow down, and their underlying architecture just can't handle big customers, large spikes, or the growth that they hope to have. How does a startup find technology that can grow with them? 
Well, Oracle has this startup partnership. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. You get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash go to slash darknet. For our third story here, we'll hear one from Dan Tentler, which goes by Vist. So I'm Vist. Uh, I run Phobos Group. We do interesting work for interesting people. Now, Vis was working for a company a while back as a penetration tester and security consultant. It was a good company, but for some zany reason, the company ran out of money, stopped paying the employees. So he started his own company, which was pretty much the same company. But since the people were all looking for jobs, Vis just scooped them up and took the talent with him, including his co-founder, Ali. They called it the Phobos Group. Phobos Group was formed essentially because myself and Ali were were just fed up with perpetuating the cycle of um, compliance is the bare minimum, so we're just going to do that. Oh, God, we're breached. Oh, what do we do? Oh, fire the CISO. Like, rinse and repeat, right? So it's this whole do absolutely the bare minimum or slightly below the bare minimum, get horribly steamrolled by malware, blame somebody, fire them, give them several million dollars as a as a golden parachute, uh, bring in someone else and the cycle repeats. And we're like, this is dumb. Like all of the stuff that's happening, this is entirely smoke and mirrors and snake oil. And we're done. This is stupid. We're out. So our core offerings are simulating what real bad guys do. This is opinionated and talented in securing clients' networks and testing their security in a real and meaningful way. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He finds the dirty parts of the network and tells you how important it is to clean it up. Let's see what's a good one. Yeah, I have, I have, I have one. So there's, there's a, a company that we, uh, that came to us at one point a while back that said, we have a, we have a bizarre problem and we're not sure how to fix it. Typically, Vis's clients might ask for a penetration test to get things started. But in this case, they told Vis they have a problem with a specific employee. They are having discussions with folks or making comments about stuff that are like private personal emails that, piece, that people have, have written, uh, not even on their work account. And it's making these people very, very nervous because they're beginning to think that they're being surveilled. And to, to add, to exacerbate that problem, um, this person is also kind of a creeper and he keeps trying to flirt up the girls in the office and somehow he knows who's single and who's not single despite the fact that nobody talks about this at work. They basically knew that the dude was a problem and said like, we need to find a way to get this guy out of the company, please help. That's, that's unusual, okay? It's very unusual, but when you bill yourself as a company that doesn't do wham bam, thank you ma'am, pen tests and rubber stamp security, you get the interesting stuff and not the boring stuff. Hmm. Okay, now I'm aware that the vast majority of security threats in the network come from the inside. Something like 60% of all attacks are carried out by people in the company because they're doing things like simple human error. You know what? I'm guilty of that. I've accidentally taken down a whole network myself. I got the ID10T award for that one. And sometimes people just accidentally share their passwords, like when they're forwarding email chains. Or sometimes you just have someone evil in the company, a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
So at this point, it sounds like this creeper in their office is somehow getting data from the employees, which is making people feel uncomfortable. It sounds like it could be an insider attack. We start asking questions, and the story is basically that there's a guy that works for this company, and he was like in help desk or in like low-level IT, and he was your typical office creeper sociopath, and he was making all the women in the office uncomfortable. And uh, he was uh, abrasive and he was not pleasant and he was not friendly. And he was difficult to work with. But because this company, the way they explained it is, well, we're family owned and we, um, we don't want to put a bad taste in people's mouths. So they tended to not fire people. They, they wanted to try to like get people to leave on their own accord. So in this, in this instance, their genius, their galaxy brain idea and and I hope you have whiskey on hand, was to put this guy in a position that he would hate so much that he would quit on his own accord and the problem would solve itself, right? Like make the person so miserable that they leave on their own accord. Not an uncommon thing. WebSense did that to me. It took several years. That's a whole other story. But um, yeah, not, not an uncommon thing. If you have a non-confrontational, not A-type personality management and leadership, then you want the problem to fix itself. So you, you orchestrate, you know, uh, a lateral move for this person and say, Oh, here, and you, you, you dress it up as a need. Oh, we need, we need you over here way more than we need you over there. Like this is good. This would be so great for you. And it's all lies. So what they did was they promoted him to the head of security. What? They promoted him to head of security. They took a guy that was a problem. They took a guy that was, that was making women in the office uncomfortable and they promoted him to the head of security. So they gave him the keys to the kingdom. Okay, this is going to be interesting. This is going to try to look around the network to find some kind of reason why this guy should be fired. But this guy has full control of the entire network. He has full access administratively to the entire infrastructure of the company. So you have to presume that if he's spying on other people, he would be, he would be spying on us to uh, out of, out of a, a sense of um, self-preservation. So it's almost certainly, since they contacted us from their from their work email and from their uh they had several calls with us from their boardroom they're almost certainly that guy had access to those conversations and he is almost certainly aware that he is now being investigated and we're working on it well this is going to be a challenge then it's like a backwards game of cat and mouse where the mouse is trying to catch the cat doing something illegal or blatantly against the company rules so that he can be fired and i've also heard of companies that just won't fire anyone like state and government agencies are like this often you almost never hear of anyone getting fired because of poor performance so this gets to work step one get out of band out of earshot. Basically, the bosses need to get off the network to avoid the spying eyes of this guy. We had them bring in personal machines or work entirely with personal machines um, so that there was no way for this guy to move laterally onto their equipment. Uh, we forced them to set up 2FA. We forced them to change all the passwords. Uh, and then we were looking at their uh, equipment to make sure that it was not phoning home. So uh, the first thing we had to do to get that um, engagement off the ground was basically teach the customer how to do out-of-band communications. And then once we got to the point where we were doing out-of-band communications, um, they started relaying to us the ways that he was horribly like breaking his own OPSEC. Okay, so even though they had stopped using the corporate network altogether and were using cell phones and text messages and, and a different email system altogether, this guy still ended up finding out stuff that they were talking about. For instance, they went to lunch one day and this head of security creeper guy says... 
so how'd that meeting with Phobos go yesterday? And they texted Viz and told him about this. And he, he's like, what? How did they know that? But something like that actually narrows down the possibilities pretty well. He must know this because either one, he bugged Viz, which is not likely, or two, he bugged the boss's office, or three, he was on the call. Those are the only three possible scenarios. So the team from Phobos goes into the office and starts snooping around. He went into meeting rooms looking for any unusual equipment, anything taped underneath a table or strange devices stuffed in a potted plant in the corner of the room. And he found stuff, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the dude was physically bugging uh, like the boardroom and the meeting rooms. He, he put like cheap, you know, buy them, buy them on Amazon, buy them on spy shop type deals. He put them inside of the um, receptacles for power. He like took the screw off, like enemy of the state style, like Jason Bourne mode, like got some cheapy audio bug and put it in the, the power receptacle in the boardroom. Okay, good start. Get rid of the bugs in the office. Now the team starts looking at the network. We were granted administrative access to stuff and we were able to find some of his some of his implants, which weren't even implants, were like PowerShell scripts to do stuff. But he was using the system against the system. So like, you can configure phone systems to record every phone call. So that's what he did. You can configure Windows Active Directory to use GPO to, to, to do basically simple surveillance on all the workstations. He had the phone system configured to record and save every phone call made so that he could review them. And he and he uh, configured, um, I think it was a GPO that he set up to take screenshots of people's machines and uh, send him screenshots. So he was getting screenshots of every employee and he was recording every phone call. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, if the objective is to surveil the office, then if you and if you're the head of security, then you don't need to use spyware. You can use the system to surveil the system. It's been designed that way. So it's just a matter of who's driving it, right? Now, at this point, the guy is starting to become aware that Vis is on to him and investigating him. So he started trying to block Vis from doing certain things. He was, but he he was not. He wasn't a security person. He was a help desk guy that got promoted to the head of security because they wanted him to try to quit. So... In terms of technical aptitude, while he was fairly technical, he was not a security guy by nature. Like, um, So it wasn't very difficult to run circles around him. So at this point in the investigation, one of Viss's co-workers asked to see the data center. But when they opened the network closet to see what was in there, it was all gone. And what this guy did was he took all of their hosting and moved it to Ukraine took all their on-premise stuff from their office and took it into his garage, put it in a two-post rack in his garage, got business cable, and then started doing things like writing off his mortgage and all of his power and all of his water and all of his utilities as business expenses because he was hosting. He was he basically on paper said that he was the, the hosting facility for the company. What a crazy weirdo. He moved all the servers to either a hosting provider he had full control over or his garage? And because he was the head of security, he had the authority to make all these decisions and execute them. Then he was issued, I don't know why, a corporate Amex. Amex is their corporate credit card, American Express. And it's only to be spent on business-related things like traveling to clients' locations or buying things for work. And on that corporate Amex, he put all sorts of things like his groceries and his uh, um, uh, wedding reception. Um, and that's, it was shortly after all that happened is when we got called in. So one of the first things we started asking is who on earth is approving his expenses? Who, 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 yeah. And then it turns out like it was his boss guy and his boss guy was also completely oblivious and didn't even bother looking. He was like, oh, well, this is just temporary, right? He's going to go. 
but he was putting almost 200 grand a year on this on this corporate Amex and like nobody in question. This is smart. He followed the money. Always follow the money. And when he showed this to the executives that this guy's spending this much money, they sat down his boss and had a really difficult chat with him. At this point, the company has a solid case against this head of security creepo guy to fire him. But maybe they should do more than just that. There was this process of producing enough evidence to basically turn him over to law enforcement. And it was just a matter of documenting all the stuff that was discovered with photos and logs and going through all the, like basically building a timeline and then turning it over to the FBI and saying, this guy is broken. Uh, we don't know how many laws. So Viss and his team did just that. They collected all the logs and evidence of any potential laws this guy broke, put it into a report and turned it into the bosses. Uh, in the state of California, the guy was breaking all sorts of laws. I'd have to go look them all up to get you the specific examples. But if you just look for like employee privacy laws, you're going to find pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff. There are laws against how you can surveil your own employees in California, and that's where this company was. Yeah, he went way above and beyond what the laws allowed here. So Viz had lots of evidence that he was breaking all kinds of laws, and he turned this into the client. They thanked Viz for his help, and that was the end of that. What the company did with that guy is kind of unclear, but Viz heard that the FBI built a solid case against him and came in and arrested that guy, and he left the office in handcuffs. But this investigation opened the eyes of the bosses to many other problems in the company. Like, who hired this guy? And who let all this stuff just keep going on and on and on? The company eventually hired a bunch more IT and security staff that weren't toxic or crazy, and they took back control of their own network. And the company changed the way they view firing people. Now, they've learned how much it can cost a company if they don't fire certain people. The damage from just this one person was enormous. $200,000 in corporate credit card charges, firing a lot of staff and spending months getting the network cleaned up and back to a secure place so that they can manage it themselves. All that adds up. And it would have just been a lot better if they just fired him instead of trying to place him into a situation to get him to quit. You've been listening to Darknet Diaries. A huge thanks goes to Dave Kennedy for sharing his story. You can find him on Twitter. His name there is HackingDave, or visit TrustedSec.com. Also, thank you, Clay, for that awesome story. And Clay is inviting all of you to check out the Whopper Summit. That's W-O-P-R-S-U-M-M-I-T dot org. And if you're in the Philadelphia area, check it out. I first heard Clay's story on the Getting Into InfoSec podcast, which is a great podcast that interviews people on how they got into InfoSec. I was even a guest once. So if you want to hear stories about how people got started doing these kind of things, check out the podcast, Getting Into InfoSec. And finally, thanks Viss for your story. Catch him on Twitter. His name is V-I-S-S or at Phobos.io. This episode was created by me, Venomwares. Or you could just call me VMwares for short. My name is Jeffrey Sider, and I got some production help this episode from the modest Michelle Martin. The music was created by the trippy troubadour, Breakmaster Cylinder. See you in two weeks.